Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. I'm not sure who read this passage over in the hub this morning, but I know it was beautifully read over here, okay, by a beautiful lady. I want you to turn there, if you would. We're making our journey through the Gospel of Luke. It's been a blessing to go through this incredible, incredible book that God has given to us. As you're turning there to Luke 19, I want to ask you the question. What is the loudest, what is the loudest gathering of people you have ever heard? I hope it wasn't an argument last night at your house, okay? And I hope it's not a rock concert coming back to your mind either. Some of those things from your BC days, okay? But I mean just the noise of the crowd, not the noise of music. But just the noise of voices. What's the loudest you've ever heard? I was thinking about that this week. And for me, immediately, went back to an evening in high school when our basketball team, which was rated number one in the state of Indiana. If you know anything about Indiana high school basketball, that's a big deal. And we were playing the number two rated basketball team in the state. We were playing it in our gymnasium, a game. And our gymnasium then, to this day, is the largest high school gymnasium in the world. Holds 9,300 people. 9,300 people that year, 5,200 season tickets were sold. It's crazy. Well, you can imagine this game is going on and they've put up extra bleachers. There are about 10,000 people watching this high school basketball game. And it went back and forth and back and forth. And the crowd got louder and louder. And you have to imagine this. You came in at at street level, and then our gymnasium went, was shaped like a stop sign, and then you went down 24 rows to the court. It was a seventh of a mile around the top, I can tell you. I ran it many times. <laughs> but the game got louder and louder. It went into overtime. It got so loud. I never saw this before or after in a game the referee would blow the whistle with all of his might. You could not hear it. The only way they could stop the game, the referee would have to go grab the ball and bring it back over and call whatever the foul or infraction was because you could not hear the referee's whistle blowing for all his might. I tell you, my ears were ringing. For days, And by the way, we won the game. <laughs> I had very little to do, that, to do with that, but I did have one of the best seats in the house, I'll guarantee you. Now I want you to imagine thousands upon thousands upon thousands and thousands of people shouting all at the same time and all of their voices echoing up out of a valley outside of Jerusalem, the Kidron Valley. And the shouts of thousands and thousands are echoing off the Mount of Olives. They are going to the west and 
echoing off the sides of the Temple Mount and the whole atmosphere is just a roar. And you can hear the phrase, if you can hear it all again and again, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's how Jesus entered Jerusalem. And we want to talk about that this morning. We want to think about this passage that under this consideration, hail to the king. Hail to the king. This is Palm Sunday we're reading about. We would call it today. It's five days before Jesus suffering on the cross. One week before his glorious resurrection. It's the day when he finally at the end of his ministry, enters into Jerusalem. And if you've been following along through the Gospel of Luke, you know, if you go back to chapter 9, verse 51, the Bible says that Jesus turned toward Jerusalem. He set his face to head toward Jerusalem. Very specifically, it is mentioned that he set his face to go to Jerusalem it means he went there with total determination, knowing what was ahead of him. And he went there with total determination because he had total devotion. Total devotion to the will of his Father. And total devotion to the needs of rebel sinners like you and me. And aren't you thankful that Jesus didn't turn back? But you know what has amazed me as I thought about it this week? You take the Gospel of Luke from chapter 9, verse 51, until you arrive at chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus is headed toward the hell of the cross. And yet what does he do? He has time for people. He has time for the hurting. He has time for the sick. He has time for the grieving. He has time for the outcast. He has time to talk with people. He has time to go into their homes. He has time to attend party. He has time to talk people out of trees. <laughs> Jesus was never too busy for people. And no matter how stressed out you are, you're not as stressed out as Jesus was. Whatever's before you is nothing that's compared to what was before Jesus. And may I never say again, as I've said way too often in my life, I'm too busy, I'm too stressed out for people because my master was not. And we have gone through this book of the Bible and most of it, is about a few weeks of Jesus under this burden, headed to the cross, yet he had time for people. He had time for people. Now he's just made the last 25-mile journey from Jericho, just 25 miles away, 1,400 feet below sea level. Now he's arrived at Jerusalem, 2,800 feet above sea level. Up, up, up he's come. 
until he's just about to crest the hill called the Mount of Olives. But before he crests the hill and Jerusalem is spread out before him in his sight, Jesus intentionally stops. He stops. He pauses. Because there are some things that need to be done to prepare for this entrance. And that's what I want us to notice this morning. I want us to notice what Jesus has for us here in this moment where he stopped to prepare before his entrance. Now here's three things I'm going to share with you quickly. We're going to consider the providential implementation of this moment. This moment is providential in how it's implemented. Secondly, we're going to consider the prophetic implication of this moment. It's prophetic. And then, most of all, perhaps, by God's goodness and grace and the power of the Holy Spirit this morning, I pray that we will consider the personal application of this moment. Because this moment is not just an experience recorded for history. This is a real opportunity that's given to all of us today. So first of all, as we look at this text, I want you to notice the providential implementation for this moment. Now the key word there is providential. Providential. That's the opposite of accidental. <laughs> this moment is not by chance. This moment is by choice. Things are not out of control. This is not mob rule. This is not things spiraling out of control. Friends, listen to me. Nothing on this earth ever spirals out of the control of God. He's in control. This moment is not by chance. It's by choice. Jesus is in control. Jesus is in charge. Now notice... He's in charge, not just about the big things, he's in charge of the details. He tells, first of all, the disciples, before they crest this hill of the Mount of Olives, he tells the disciples what they were to do. Specifically, two of them. He says to them, this is what you are to do. Verse 30, he said, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet, yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. <laughs> now, I don't know which two of the disciples he selected. I'm sure they weren't jumping up and down and saying, Oh, me, me. I'd love to go untie a colt that we're told in another gospel is next to its mother and take it away. And it belongs to other people. I don't think anybody was volunteering for that. But Jesus said, this is what you're to do. And then he said, of course, you may be asked about this. <laughs> and here's what you're to say. Verse 31, if anyone asks you, 
Why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now, question. The question is why? Why would Jesus, with this huge throng, marching toward Jerusalem, at the very last leg of the journey, before they crest the hill of the Mount of Olives, why would he say, I want you to go get this colt? A colt of a donkey. Why? Because Jesus is going to ride this animal into Jerusalem. And in doing so, his riding this animal, listen carefully, is going to be providential in demonstrating that Jesus is the king. Now Jesus is not mistaken about that. Jesus doesn't have an identity problem. He knows who he is. His disciples know who he is. But he is going to ride on this colt of a donkey to demonstrate to the very city of Jerusalem that he is the king. He is, in a sense, forcing the issue. By doing this, anyone who knew their Bible, and in that day, just about everybody knew their Bible, knew that 400 years earlier, the prophet Zechariah, by the Spirit of God, had prophesied this is how the king will come. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is providentially taking this animal for his mode of transportation because by it he will be declaring, I am the fulfillment of what was prophesied 400 years ago. I am the king. I am the king. But why a donkey? I mean, is that what you would have chosen? I mean, if the king is coming to Knoxville, if some great ruler is coming, what kind of vehicle are we going to give him? It's probably not going to be an old beat-up Ford Pinto, if you can find one that didn't catch fire. It's going to be a classy vehicle. In Jesus' day, maybe it's going to be a stallion. Maybe it's, it's going to be a throne set up on a, on a beautiful, beautifully adorned wagon. No. Why is Jesus coming this way? Because he's not only showing that he is the king. Listen, church, he's showing the kind of king he is. He's showing the kind of king he is. He is humble, gentle, 
The only time in his entire life that Jesus describes who he is in his spirit. The only time he describes who he is in his innermost being. He says this. I am gentle and lowly. I'm humble. And if you come to me, you won't find a burden. You won't find legalistic rules and regulations. What will you find? Rest for your souls. He's showing the kind of king that he is. He's not a king that brings war. He's a king that gives peace. He's not a king. He's not a ruler that divides people. He's a ruler that unites people in him. Brings them together. And in him they find rest and peace. And friends, I want you to know, this is how Jesus enters every human heart. This is how he becomes king. When Jesus comes to be your king, he comes in meekness and humility to give you rest and peace. Friend, put away from you the lie of the enemy. That to surrender your life to Jesus is to lose your identity. My friend, you lose your identity when you keep yourself from Jesus. You find your identity in Christ. And you find that He's the sweetest of all masters. He's the kindest of all kings. And He'll come into your life. And He'll bring peace. And He'll bring rest. That's his spirit. And friend, let me ask you something. Is this how we enter people's lives? If Jesus was meek and lowly in the way that he entered Jerusalem, how do you enter a room? If Jesus was kind and gentle in how he treated people, how do you treat people? I'm here to tell you the chip on the shoulder attitude. The argumentative spirit, the person who's looking for a fight, is not walking in the spirit of Jesus Christ. The spirit of Jesus Christ is confident, yes. It is absolutely the spirit of one that is sound and healthy. But a person who has the spirit of Christ within them and they're controlled by that spirit, they don't have anything to prove. They're not trying to prove anything. They're trying to point people to Jesus. And you need to put out of your mind the thought that you're doing God's work in a harsh and critical and argumentative spirit. My friend, if that is your thinking, you are mistaken. That is the flesh on parade. That's not the spirit permeating your life. Jesus is the king. And how does he enter? Meek and lowly. Humble. Jesus is coming to the city of David. It's the king's city. Friends, this is his city. This is the city of the great king. This is his city. And knowing this, this is the moment 
that grips his disciples. They know who he is. And they know that he is the fulfillment of the prophecies of the coming of the great king. And it's a moment they know that is filled with prophetic implications. And that's the second thing I want you to see. Jesus is coming. And his coming is providential in the way that he implements it, but it is also prophetic in its implications, and his disciples know that. They know that. And immediately, as he mounts, or they help him mount this donkey, isn't that a beautiful thing? It's sort of like this. It's almost like a team putting their coach on the shoulders. You ever seen that? It's beautiful. They... Jesus doesn't have a saddle. And so they say, well, here, use my coat. Use my coat. And they make a saddle out of coats. And then they lift Jesus up and put him on the donkey. This incredible moment. And they begin to praise and worship because they crest that hill. They're coming down the Mount of Olives. They're approaching the city of David. They know who this one on the cold is. This is the son of David, the promised Messiah. And they begin to shout out and praise him. The king has come. Hosanna. What does Hosanna mean? God saves. God's salvation. The idea is he's here. The Savior is here. God is here. Salvation from our God has come. Salvation from the son of David. The king has come. The long-awaited moment. Messiah has come. And what happens as a procession sort of turns into a parade. (laughs) And they're a parade of worshipers. They are worshiping the Lord. Verse 38, it says... They are saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're they're quoting scripture here as they praise God. Hey, that's a good way to praise God. You don't want to say quote scripture. They're quoting from Psalm 118. Psalm 113 to some way, uh, Psalm 118, those six psalms are called the Hallel Psalms. They are the songs that people sang as they went to Jerusalem for the Passover or for one of the festivals. You would hear people singing these songs. And so here his disciples pick up the Psalm of David and they sing about the Song of David. Blessed is he who has come. In the name of the Lord. But notice, isn't it interesting what they say? This caught my attention. Verse 38. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Does that sound like anything you've ever heard before? About 33 years earlier, about five miles south of where they are, there were some shepherds watching over their flock at night and the child had been born to Mary and what happened the heavens 
glowed with the presence of the heavenly angels. And they began to praise God. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. But notice here, there's a slight change. Did you notice this? It's not quite the same song the angels sang. Look at verse 38. It says, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now put those two songs together. The first song at the day of Jesus' birth. The last song as he enters Jerusalem. From the inhabitants of heaven. Peace on earth. Goodwill to men. And from the inhabitants of earth comes the echo now. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What's happening here? You're having the inhabitants of heaven and the inhabitants of earth bookending the life of Jesus and their focus is on Him. My friend, listen carefully. All the voices of earth and all the voices of heaven will one day proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord. And here they're united. They praise and they honor the Lord. They're praising the Prince of Peace. And what does Jesus do with this worship? What does he do with this worship? He fully receives it. He fully receives it. He doesn't say, oh, wait, 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 wait a minute. I'm just a rabbi from Nazareth. I'm just carpenter's son. I'm a nobody. No, he's gentle and lowly, but he knows who he is. He doesn't have an identity crisis. He knows who he is. And he affirms and receives the worship of these men and women and boys and girls as they throw their coats on the ground and the palm leaves that they've been carrying for the festival of Passover. They put those on the ground. They start tearing them off the trees. (laughs) And Jesus is being worshipped as he rides this colt of a donkey. But there's a few people not pleased. Isn't there always? Amazing, amazing. It's some religious people that aren't pleased. I won't go there. The Pharisees hear this. The most religious people in the land hear the voices of these children, hear the voices of these young people, These adults, men and women and the aged, praising the king. And what's their response? Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to shut up. Why? Because this uninhibited worship bothers them. And friend, I want to tell you something. Listen carefully. 
You can always tell what's in the heart of a person by how they respond to uninhibited worship of Jesus. You can talk about God. You can talk about the Lord. But let someone start praising the name of Jesus and getting a little excited about it. You'll find out what's in someone's heart. The other day, I was at a a coffee shop. Imagine that. (laughs) But it wasn't one of my regular haunts. I was out on some mission work. And as I went out the door, there was a bulletin board and said, share some good thoughts. Share some good thoughts. And I walked over there, a little pad that you could write on. I thought, okay. And I looked up there, and there were some nice things that had been said and all this. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll put something on there. And all, this is what came to my mind. This is all I wrote. John 3.16. We sang it this morning. I didn't even write it out. I just wrote John 3. 16, put it on the board. Well, yesterday, I was back in that shop. I looked at the board. It's covered with notes, and all the ones I saw are still there. But one is missing. I'll find out who it is, too. They have cameras in those places. Someone took down my note. Now, think about that. It just said John 3.16. I was in a hurry, but I'm going back. I'm going to put about 10 of them up, okay? (laughs) And there may be a few others I just write out, say, the wages of sin is dead. (laughs) It wasn't one of my regular places. It's another place. I won't say where. Started way out west, way out west. Some city in the northwest. I won't won't go into all that. Like I said, I was on mission. But listen to how Jesus responded to these Pharisees. Listen to how he responded. When they said, make them be quiet, Lord. Here's what Jesus said. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Why? Because Jesus is headed to Jerusalem for one purpose, and that is to bring redemption. And it is a redemption for lost sinners. Sinners who are cursed in their own sin. But it is a redemption that will redeem the whores. What Adam lost, the second Adam has Regain. Paradise lost has been paradise gained, paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And this world is groaning and in travail until the moment when the full restoration happens that Jesus has already paid for. And if people didn't shout, the very creation would shout. Because they knew what was going to happen. They would join the praise. What a day. What a day. But in a few moments, what a change. It all changes. There's not a change in emotions. People keep 
worshiping, keep singing, keep chanting, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Everything changes, though, when you look at Jesus because there's a change of his emotions. As he comes down that hill and looks at the city of David, Jerusalem, the city of God, in front of him, he's overcome with emotion. Why? Right now, he's surrounded by a crowd praising him. But in a few days, he'll be surrounded by a crowd that'll be saying, crucify him. Crucify him. In a few days, it'll change from a crowd that's saying, put a crown, put a crown on his head to a a crowd that'll be saying, put a cross on his back. Jesus knows this. And surrounded by praise and celebration, the Bible says he began to weep. And you need to understand something here. The word that Luke uses is a very, very specific word. The only time it's really used. And the word doesn't mean there were just tears coming down his face. That's not the image. What it means here is that he is heaving and sobbing. You, maybe you've experienced that a time or two where you don't think you can catch your breath. You're, you're, you're sobbing that you can barely breathe. That's what Jesus is doing as he comes down the Mount of Olives. You see, Jeremiah saw the coming destruction of the city of Jerusalem 600 years before And he raised up a lament over it. He is called what? The weeping prophet. But here we see the weeping king. The weeping king. Because he knows in this moment, he knows the implications of about what is going to happen. He, he sees into the future, not, not the distant future. He sees into the future just 40 years or so or less. He sees into the future. And here's what he sees and he declares it. This is what's breaking his heart. That yes, he is coming as the rightful king. The king of this city. Yet he will be rejected. Verse 43, this is what he sees. For the days will come upon you, meaning this city, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you, hem you in on every side. They will tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because... You did not know. You did not understand. You would not receive, is the idea, this day of your visitation. What? The visitation of your peace. You would not have it. He could see what was going to happen in 70 A.D. when this city of Jerusalem would be under siege for five months 
by the Roman general Titus, who would become the emperor Titus. And after five months, the walls would be breached. The temple would be set fire. The gold roof would begin to melt. And precious metals would go flowing down through the streets. And the Roman soldiers, to get the gold, would start prying up the stones, one stone upon another. And the devastation was so great that the only thing that was left was just the retaining wall of the temple and three towers. That's all that was left. Jesus saw it all. He saw their blindness and their hard-heartedness and knew that their rejection would bring their ruin. And friends, that's what always happens when you reject Jesus. It brings ruin. This is the moment that has prophetic implications, not only in the immediate future and in the near future, but there is also something else I want you to see here. I must show this to you. There is a fulfillment in the distant future to Jesus, but maybe not so distant for us. You see, there is another parade of praise that's going to happen. This parade of praise is really just a prequel. <laughs> it's a prequel. It's a prologue to the coming event because the king is coming back. He's coming again. And just as Zechariah's prophecy was literally fulfilled and he literally rode the colt of a donkey down that hill on his coming to Jerusalem, Zechariah had another prophecy that will be literally fulfilled and I want you to hear it. Chapter 14 of Zechariah, his final prophecy. Here's what he said by the Spirit of God. Zechariah 14.3 Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations gathered. When He fights as on the day of the battle, when He goes forth to battle, on that day His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Where did Jesus leave this earth? He left this earth from the Mount of Olives. And where is He coming back? He's coming back to this same top of this hill to bring everlasting righteousness, to bring peace at last. Many years ago, I was with a group, some of you maybe were with the group, we were in Jerusalem. Lord willing, we're going to go again in March if you'd like to come. But that time we had a free day in Jerusalem. Some free time. And I'd already been over on the Mount of Olives, but down near the Garden of Gethsemane, looked out over that beautiful view. But I decided i got to go a little higher. 
a lot higher on the top of the Mount of Olives today. It's a, it's a small town in the neighborhood, but it's not the safest place in the world. But I just decided I had to go there. I don't know if Susan even knows about this. I know she didn't know about it then. <laughs> and I went up through those narrow streets. Yes, my head was kind of a swivel, but I kept going higher and higher and higher. And finally, I reached a place where I was at the top of the Mount of Olives. <laughs> I had to go there. And I don't know if people thought I was a crazy man or what, but I couldn't help myself. I just looked up those blue skies standing there, and I said, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. You came to this hill once. You left this hill. And you're coming back. I can't wait. Come, Lord Jesus. I can only just share this with you. My friend, what's the personal application? Hear this. If you haven't heard anything else, oh, dear friend, I beg you in Jesus' name to hear this. Here is the first and most important application for everyone in this room, everyone in the hub, everyone who's watching Everyone who will ever hear this message, listen to what I'm about to tell you. My dear friend, listen. It is either Jesus or judgment. That's all there is. That's the only decision. Because the judgment has already fallen on Jesus. And you either meet God Almighty, Holy God, at the cross, at Christ, where His judgment has already fallen on sin, you can meet Him there and be not guilty. But if you won't meet Him at Jesus, then you will meet Him in judgment. My friend, that's the lesson. Jerusalem would not have Jesus, so all that was left was judgment. And for every soul, it's Jesus or judgment. And friends, you think about that about your neighbor. You think about that about the people you work with. You think about that the people you're sitting near in a restaurant. It's either Jesus or judgment. And we have the answer. It's Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you can be like some people in this story. You can be like the one on the donkey. How are you going to live your life? Live it like the one on the donkey. By His Spirit, humble and meek. I want to challenge you. Be like the owners of the donkey. What was their response? We don't know how Jesus knew this or how this was prepared. But they said, what are you doing? And all they had to say is, the Lord has need of him. 
You know, that should be our answer. Whenever Jesus speaks, whenever we know, the answer should be simply from our heart, oh, the Lord has need of it? All the things that we call our own, if the Lord wants it, is our answer yes. Friend, it's his already. This donkey with his, was his. He created this donkey. He just borrowing it. I pray in our giving, in our stewardship, we'll always have the thought, the Lord has need of this. It's his. Share in it. Number three, be like the disciples around the donkey. Friend, joy-filled praise and submission from your heart. They were filled with joy. And they were surrendering their very garments. As an expression, we love you, Lord, so much that there's nothing that we have that we wouldn't willingly let you walk upon. And consider it a privilege. And friend, you know who we need to be like? Listen carefully. Don't be offended. Be like the donkey. Be like the donkey. Who had the greatest honor in this whole crowd other than Jesus? That little donkey. Because that little donkey got to carry Jesus. And his ears straight up. Hearing the hosannas and the praise and the glory. What a privilege for us. And we're quite like donkeys. Just to carry Jesus around. And what's our reward? People to notice us? Were, were people in the parade saying, what a great donkey? <laughs> awesome. Awesome wheels you got here, Jesus. No, no. Years ago, I heard, I read this prayer from Dr. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God. I have prayed it dozens of times. Let me pray it over us. Would you bow your heads, please? Here's the prayer. O oh God, be thou exalted over my possessions. Nothing of earth's treasures shall seem dear unto me if only thou art glorified in my life. Be thou exalted over my friendships. I am determined that thou shalt be above all, though I must stand deserted and alone in the midst of the earth. Be thou exalted above my comforts, though it mean the loss of bodily comforts and the carrying of heavy crosses. I, will sh I shall keep my vows I make to you this day. Be thou exalted over my reputation. Make me ambitious to please thee, even if as a result I must sink into obscurity and my name be forgotten as a dream.
Rise, O Lord, into thy proper place of honor. Above my ambitions, above my likes and dislikes, above my family, my health, and even my life itself, let me decrease that thou mayest increase. Let me sink that thou mayest rise above. Ride forth upon me as thou didst ride into Jerusalem, mounted on the humble little beast, a colt, a foal of a donkey. And let me hear the children cry to thee, Hosanna in the highest. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand.